South of Reno, along old Highway 395, on your way to Carson City, there is some steam coming up from just off the old road. You can shoot the infrared camera on a cool day and actually see lines of heat um, along these uh, faults that bring up the volcanically charged hot water from underground. Scientist Taylor Wilson took environmental reporter Amy Alonzo and I down to the steam to look at what are some new geysers that are forming. Taylor is a nuclear physicist, and you might be thinking, why is a nuclear physicist looking at geysers in Reno? And then the reason is that a lot of times he's looking for microbes and then studying them, and there's so many undiscovered microbes that a lot of times he'll take samples, bring them back to his lab, and then uh, test them with radiation to see if they're radiation resistant. And this is a way to learn a lot about uh, the different aspects and properties of radiation, how to protect people from it, and just how nature responds to it. What's interesting, if you step down here, um, but this is boiling. So that's the power of the depths of the earth there coming to the surface. Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host today, Joey Lovato, and on today's episode, we hear from scientist Taylor Wilson about these new geysers, and a little later on in the show, I talk with Chris Smallcomb, the meteorologist in charge of the Reno National Weather Service, about this past summer and fall and the coming winter. But back to those geysers, we have a newsletter here at the Indy called Indie Environment that is run by our environmental reporter, Amy Alonzo, and you can find a write-up that she did on these forming geysers on that newsletter. But also podcasting intern Alex Kuroh interviewed Taylor Wilson after he took us out to look at that boiling water coming up from the ground in South Reno. Why is this important to you? Like, why is this something you study? Hydrothermal systems are very interesting because they're this connection to the deep earth. People really don't think about the energy that's locked beneath the surface of the ground, the amount of pressure and temperature that the, the rock beneath our feet has inside of it. And so... That's really interesting, both from a fundamental science standpoint, understanding the geology, the geoscience of, of the Earth system, but also because potentially we can tap into that to create energy from that, electrical energy, but also we can study that as a source of energy for life. And so one of the things I'm really interested in is, can we find life outside of Earth and what are the kind of the energy sources that life might use? And so... One of those tends to be these kind of hydrothermal environments. So by studying what we call terrestrial analogs or places on Earth where we find these systems, it helps inform our search for life elsewhere in the universe. Yeah, do you have the thermometer with you? Yeah, that's what I grabbed. So you can see the trend here. Iron sulfides, the, the, the dark color is iron sulfide. And then the trend goes along here. And then there's a little bit of activity over here. Okay, so I feel like I need to set the scene here a little bit better for you. If you've been to Reno, uh, on the south end of town, there is a mall called the Sierra Summit. And south of that mall, about a mile or two, if you pull off on the side of the road on the east side, along that old highway, there's a large metal state historical marker, specifically historical marker number 198, and it reads... Steamboat Hot Springs. These natural hot springs are notable for their curative qualities. They were nationally acclaimed by President Ulysses S. Grant when he visited them in 1879. Early immigrants so named them because of their puffing and blow. Located in 1860 by Felix Monet, a hospital with adjacent bathhouses was subsequently added by a Dr. Elias. 
the Comstock mining activities and the coming of the Virginia and Truckee railroads in 1871 caused Steamboat to become terminal. So just past that historical marker is just this little old bumpy road that's paved, but it's strewn with potholes. And there alongside it is where steam is coming up. And if you get closer, there's a ton of boiling water. Ironically, there is a big billboard for sodas at the gas station Maverick nearby that reads Fountain Frenzy. Nevada, at one point in time, had two of the best examples of geysering activity in the world. And one of those, if you live here in the Truckee Meadows, it's just south of town, and it was was called the Steamboat Geothermal System. And unfortunately, both the sites in Nevada where there was geysering activity, they both ceased to exist in the latter part of the 20th century. Now, why they cease to exist, that's still probably an open scientific question. Certainly, geothermal exploration has played a big part in that. When you tap into these systems to generate energy from them, it tends to lower the water table and reduce the available energy, and these systems can go dormant. But at one point in time, in the early 20th century, the steamboat geothermal system on the south end of, of Reno was a very popular attraction. People would go there to see this geysering, this bubbling hydrothermal activity. People would bathe in the waters, and they still do today. There's still baths down at the steamboat system that you can go and bathe in. Um, But it's a fascinating kind of window into the deep earth and a pretty unique one that doesn't exist in very many places in the world. But now these geysers are coming back after being dormant for a long time that um, that this has reemerged, you know, like this whole area was like this. See here, this is, um, you can, if you lean down, don't get too close, but you can hear that hissing. And that's the hydrothermal, the gases, you know, steam, carbon dioxide, a little bit of mercury, a little bit of hydrogen sulfide pumping out of the ground. And then it forms these salt deposits of, of these fumarolic minerals, which are very rare. But for all those people who don't have a scientific knowledge of geyser, what is it? So a geyser is a specific type of hydrothermal system. And so a hydrothermal system is, think of, you probably are familiar with hot springs. Everyone has seen a hot spring, bathed in a hot spring, knows about hot springs. These are examples of hydrothermal systems. So typically what happens is water goes deep inside the earth and is heated either by the heat of the depth of the earth or by a pocket of magma. And then that water comes to the surface. And if the water comes to the surface not so hot, sometimes it'll just form pools, and those are what we call hot springs. There are also fumarole, which is a more or less like a steam vent where just gases come out of the surface. And then the most unique and rare form of hydrothermal system is a geyser. So there are very few places in the world where you have geysering activity because it requires a certain set of conditions. A geyser is a manifestation of steam and water that comes out of the ground at the surface and is expelled out of the ground into the air. So think Old Faithful being probably the most famous geyser anywhere in the world. To boil water at the surface and erupt from ground level, you know, requires a significant heat source and a certain geology that just isn't found that many places in the world um, and is found even less places now because of geothermal exploration. Of course, the reason Yellowstone still exists and is, you know, one of America's most beautiful places is because U.S. government many, many years ago 
put it under a conservation easement as the first national park. Now, this isn't a geyser that's shooting hundreds of feet into the air. It's mostly just bubbling water coming up from a crack in the earth, but it does kind of come in waves where it gets more violent and more bubbles come, and then it calms down before it starts roiling again. A little bit of sulfur, you can say sulfur, that's sulfur. Um, that's probably either sodium chloride or uh, calcium sulfate. Um, and then there's some, some mercury sulfide, some iron sulfide in there too. And then probably the green stuff is life. The, probably the green stuff is photosynthetic life, high temperature, you know, very similar to what you'd see in a hot spring with, with like a green film. Um, and so that those are the stuff we want to find on Mars to understand, you know, if life originated in this kind of condition, it's probably not still on Mars, but we might find the remnants of it in these kind of deposits on Mars. We think at some point in Mars past, geologically and hydrologically, it was very similar to Earth. We're talking like three billion years ago, but at some point, the surface of Mars looked pretty similar to the surface of Earth. And we think that Mars had, in fact, now we have really good evidence that it did have almost identical hydrothermal systems to what we find at the steamboat system. And so you can do what we call remote sensing, where you fly orbiters over the surface of Mars, and you can actually look for the mineral deposits of these kind of hydrothermal systems. And that's interesting. Okay, we have one here on Earth from the south end of Reno, and we found these on Mars. Okay. Why is that interesting? We think the conditions of these hydrothermal systems are very conducive to the appearance of life. If you go to hot springs, you'll typically find what we call microbial mats or algal mats. There are these, these mats of green or orange uh, material, and that's actually life that is thriving in the hot environment of the hot spring or the geothermal system. Uh, we call these thermophiles or organisms that love heat. And so by studying these environments, it's probably one of the best ways we can understand if there was ever life on Mars and its geological past, and if there might still be life somewhere else in the universe today. So on top of studying places like Steamboat Springs for life on other planets, there is a more immediate question. This geothermal activity has been dormant for a long time. There's hot springs nearby, but not this geysering activity like this. Why is it suddenly back and more active than ever? What's really neat about living in Nevada is that we have access to these systems. Nevada probably has more hydrothermal activity than almost any other place, uh, certainly in the U.S., but even on Earth. And so it makes for this great proving ground and field laboratory for studying these kind of systems. So why is this back? Who knows? It could have been we had such a big winter that it pushed, hydraulically pushed on the water table and, and raised it back up. It could have been an earthquake. It could have been uh, seismic activity. It could have been a combination. Now, within the last few months, you have water that's now erupting at the surface again. And that's really exciting and interesting. And not just myself, but many other people studying this might be able to figure out why that activity has, has returned. So the short answer is we don't know yet. Maybe it's because of the unusually wet winter that we had last year, which we will get into in the next segment. But first, I wanted to leave you with these parting words from Taylor. We walk around and we live our lives and we don't really think a lot about what's going on beneath our feet, even though there's an incredible amount of unlocked energy there. 
These are the systems that drive hydrology, which gives us a lot of our water that we use in our everyday lives. These are the unseen processes that like are like so fascinating to me. And so I think if you happen to live in Reno and you commute by the steamboat hydrothermal system on a daily basis or occasionally, especially in the winter, you might see steam rising up. And I just think that's like an exciting connection. You know, you can see that steam and you can start to think, oh, wow, there is like an incredible amount of energy under our feet. But it's things like that where you just, it puts things in perspective. I think it, it just puts our skill and the skill of our earth and our universe really into perspective. walking along the river once again. Uh, I feel like I've been doing a lot of walks for the podcast. Uh, today I'm walking along the Truckee River in Reno with Chris Smallcomb uh, of the uh, National Weather Service. Hi Chris, how's it going? Hey, you know, it's going fine. All is well. It's 20 degrees. It's, it's good. very yeah. cold. Yeah. We're walking by some construction. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, but we're talking today because, you know, we're kind of our, you know, every six month, once a year check-in with the National Weather Service about the weather. You know, we had a lot of rain and a lot of snow last year. Let's start with the past and then we'll move to the present and then to the future. What did this summer and, and this fall kind of look like for you guys? Is this a normal summer and fall? So, you know, at least here in northern Nevada, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to keep it real. It's actually kind of a nice summer. <laughs> you know, we we had we didn't have much smoke. So that was a win for us this year compared to the last few years. We had our hot days, you know, right in mid-July. We actually tied the all-time record high temperature here in Reno 108. But it was only like a day or two. Coincidentally, it was when I was running a trail race up at Tahoe, so it was nice <laughs> and hot for that. But as, as a whole, we had, you know, it, the temperatures weren't terribly, you know, they were a little warmer than normal, but nothing too much. And we had a decent amount of rain. You know, of course, we had the remnants of Hurricane Hillary come up into Nevada, dumped a lot of rain, had, you know, a lot of impacts in, you know, around Mount Charleston and some other areas. But that was in generally, that was really good for the environment. It was generally beneficial in that, you know, a lot of Nevada got rain and it's kind of quelled the fire season. And so kind of going into fall, a few of the things is, is the stream flows are definitely above normal, you know, because mm -hmm. the water's still in the system. I've been doing some runs around Tahoe and it's like, man, there's still a lot of water in the streams and you're getting fall colors. And I think it's actually extended our fall color season here in Northern Nevada. Generally trees aren't as stressed when it's wetter. And so the fall color seasons tend to last a little longer. Nice. So a, a pretty you know, typical summer and fall, hopefully. I would say overall, you know, certainly in the in the new climate, yeah. if you will, this is probably a fairly reasonable summer. You know, had it, it, it hot, it's hot periods, it's it's cool periods, it's rainy periods, but as a whole, you know, not, not nothing too bad. Certainly here in northern Nevada. Nice. Well, I think everyone's, you know, as you can hear in the background, the Truckee River kind of flowing here. Everyone's wondering about the drought too. You know, how is the drought looking right now? The drought is pretty much gone in in, in Nevada. I mean, the, the only exception to that is parts of Clark and Lincoln counties down by Las Vegas. You know, the monsoon there is much more important than winter rains in general for the drought status. And the monsoon, at least recently, hasn't been quite as robust, although, you know, the remnants of Hillary definitely dumped plenty of rainfall. But as a whole, the state of Nevada is without drought. 
going into this winter. Okay. Now, how is that kind of defined by the National Weather Service? It is, uh, I'm going to keep it real, it is pretty subjective. It is, <laughs> it is based on data, um, precipitation, temperature anomalies, but it's also based on impacts. Our, our, our ranchers, our livestock owners, uh, agriculture producers, are they seeing impacts? Are it, municipal water districts having to, you know, to ration water, you know, mm. things like that. And so it's, it's largely a very subjective analysis. Got it, got it. Well, let's also talk about, you know, this coming winter. It's it's pretty cold right now as we walk along there. Like you said, 20 degrees. Yep. Um, I'm bundled up and so are you. What are we expecting from this winter? Yeah, so this winter, you know, everybody's talking about this monster El Nino headed our way. Yeah. And, and it, you know, from a temperature anomaly perspective in the in the Pacific Ocean, in the tropics where El Nino is, it is a big one. Yeah, it is very warm, much warmer than normal. And so the key thing to remember, though, is especially for Nevada, is... The bigger the El Nino, it isn't a linear relationship to impacts. It doesn't necessarily correlate, oh, we're going to have a monster winter. So, you know, honestly, going into, into this winter, most of the correlations do lean us a little bit in the weather, the normal direction as a whole, but it's not a, it's not a guarantee. So you got about a one in five chance of still having a dry winter and about a four in five chance of at or above normal. So, you know, let's think about your, your rolling dice at the craps table. Well, your dice are a little bit loaded toward rolling a wet winter okay. but you could still feasibly roll the other options as well okay and l last year i mean <laughs> it was snowing like every weekend we had so much precipitation so much snow yep it was kind of fun but i think a lot of people were kind of also like geez it's just never ending are we going to expect that much this year or, or that much snow or you know, is it is it if is a normal winter a little bit less snowy? Well, I'll I'll, I'll be honest from a personal perspective. I sure hope not. <laughs> Repeat of last year. I'll I'll be honest. Even as a meteorologist, as we got toward like March, remember how busy March was? How many storms we got? Yeah. Uh, man, I, there's almost this anxiety of like waking up in the morning and looking at the models like, oh, what are they going to show coming at us now? You know, <laughs> just like enough already. And, and so I get people's you know perspectives on that that it was almost too much of a good thing. And so. You know, we really don't necessarily have a sense this winter whether or not, you know, that's that would happen again. I mean, it's obviously any scenarios on the table at this point. But, you know, one thing to keep in mind that's a really stunning step, even if for, let's in general, let's say in, in Nevada and the Sierra, if we have half of what we got last year in terms of rain, snow, all that jazz, we're still going to be above normal. Okay. So it doesn't take it doesn't take a 2023 winter to cause uh, you know to, to cause to be above normal. So you know, I think the key thing is being ready for anything this winter. You know, going into this winter, the, the, as we're walking over the Truckee River here, yeah. it is flowing. A lot of the creeks and streams are above normal going into this winter. The lakes or reservoirs like Tahoe is 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 fuller than it was this time last year. Flooding is a concern. You know, with soils being wetter, so we'll have to keep our eyes peeled on that with any atmospheric rivers. Got it. You briefly mentioned El Nino, and I think we talked about that last year, but just, you know, for those who aren't aware, like, what does that mean necessarily for weather generally? So El Nino is a, it's a temperature anomaly in the tropical Pacific Ocean, and it kind of cycles between that and La Nina, where the tropical Pacific Ocean is warmer than normal in El Nino and cooler than normal in La Nina. And so what that does, it's, it's over such a large area that it actually affects the jet stream patterns around the globe. Basically, that's our storm track. That's what drives where weather systems go, especially in the mid-latitudes where we live. And so typically in El Nino winters, it sends the jet stream a little bit further south. So you get more storms into Southern California, Southern Nevada, so Las Vegas and Arizona. Whereas in La Nina, it's more in the Pacific Northwest. That's okay. where the jet stream is. So 
for, for Southern Nevada, El Ninos do tend to reliably go wetter than normal. For Northern Nevada, we're victims of latitude up here, is that El Nino, La Nina almost mean nothing precipitation-wise for us. We've had wet and dry versions of both. So also talking, you know, a little bit of vocab here. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, last year we heard a lot about atmospheric rivers, and that was kind of what was bringing in all that snow. Um, are we going to be seeing more atmospheric rivers? Is that a, a, a buzzword we're going to hear more? <laughs> Ooh, that, that is actually the, that is the core question for our winter outlook. If, if I could tell you how many atmospheric rivers we're going to get, I could tell you exactly what kind of winter we're going to have. And unfortunately, the, the state of the science isn't there where we can predict that months in advance. Okay. Uh, you know, reliably, we can see, you know, let's say two to maybe three, maybe four if we're lucky weeks out, how busy we might be atmospheric river wise. And so... You know that we just can't tell at this point, but those are those big, those big streams of moisture that come off the Pacific Ocean. You know they bring us a lot of our rain, snow. They're, they, you know, they can be beneficial for us for yeah. for moisture, but they can also be hazardous when there's too much moisture or too much wind. Um, is there anything else that you feel like we need to? You know, I think the one out. one thing that that folks sometimes they'll be like, oh, you know, you know, October was relatively quiet storm-wise. Most of November was. You know, we've had a couple storms that looked promising but ended up being kind of underperformers. You know, does a quiet start to winter mean anything for the rest of winter? Does it guarantee that pattern's going to stick around? And the, the answer is absolutely not. We, okay. We've seen the atmosphere just totally flip 180 on us. Sure. Example, a couple years ago during the pandemic, we were just getting crushed with storms in December here in northern Nevada. And as soon as New Year's Day hit, the atmosphere just totally shut down. We didn't have a single storm until like almost April. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast again and for uh, getting up early and taking this brisk morning walk with me along the Truckee River. No worries. I appreciate the invite. And I, I was already out running in shorts in 20 degrees, so this is this actually feels relatively warm to yeah, me. Yeah, so. I'm shivering <laughs> over here, but uh, <laughs> I've got a little thinner blood, I think. Yeah, no, thank you again. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I want to thank Taylor Wilson, Alex Kuro, Amy Alonzo, and Chris Smallcomb for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, along with Alex Kuro, with additional help from Michelle Rendells. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at thenvnd.com. Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I've been your host this week, Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.